You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. This podcast is brought to you by Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Welcome to the bonus eighth episode of American Prodigy, the Freddie Adu story. I'm Grant Wall, and I'm here today with somebody who's been here the entire time, but you haven't heard from him yet. You're going to hear from today, Harry Swartout, who produced this series, co-wrote it with me. Harry, how are you? I'm good, Grant. It's fun to turn the tables on you and be able to ask you some questions. I've sat through uh, 24 interviews where you've been doing all the questions, and now it's my turn. Let's fire away. Now, you and I had known each other before working on American Indian Prodigy, and you've said this in, in some of the interviews, that I produced your weekly podcast at uh, Sports Illustrated, and I helped you with SI Throwback. But I want to know how this podcast came together between you and me and what the timeline looked like. You know, I have had this idea of wanting to do something ambitious on the Freddie Adu story for several years now, really probably four, four years, going back to 2016. And... Um, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a podcast series or a written oral history or maybe a book, but uh, when you contacted me, it seemed like a podcast series would be the best way to go about it. And yes, there were a ton of challenges with the pandemic that we'll talk about here, but we had the time this past summer to start doing it. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned that you were going to, th or at least you were thinking about making this a book, but why do you think you ended up going to, in the podcast route instead of actually making another book? Well, I had actually wanted to do a book on Freddie Adu back when he was first emerging on the, the global scene. So we're talking late 2003, early 2004, and I had paid my own way, as I mentioned in the podcast, to go to Finland for the under-17 world championships where Freddie had a hat trick in his first game. And basically, it, it, it's a short story. I pitched the book idea to Freddie and his people at the time, and they said no. <laughs> so I didn't do a book. Um, and I felt like at the time, it would have required Freddie's participation to do it. That's why I, I didn't end up pursuing that book project. In terms of how to present the story now, this year, I didn't. I felt like a book project was probably too much. I, I didn't want to write something to that length. The book usually takes me two or three years, start to finish, from the reporting to the writing and everything. And I always want to do projects that are sizable and important, but I, you don't want to ever feel like you're padding things. And I felt like a six, seven, eight episode podcast series would be the best way to tell this story and, and get into real detail and depth over 
four hours of content, but still not fully book length and had such a good experience with the podcast series with you last year that I felt like this would be a good way to go. And because we had that experience working together, I think we were able to dive in and and hit the ground running. Yeah, I think one of the things that would have been lost in a book is just Freddie's charisma. He's so magnetic and you can hear it in this podcast. Like he talks and he just, he's fascinating. He's electric. And I think that is one of the reasons that I think that it works a little bit better as a podcast maybe than as a book. We talked about, you know, how we did really speak to a lot of people for a lot of time. We, like you said, hour long interviews, over 24 of them. But the one that we didn't really have the whole way was Freddie. And we, we had, it's almost like trying to pinpoint the black hole by the light around it and how it goes away at some point. Like there's this big missing piece. What did it take to finally convince him to sign on? I mean, this was a risk, a pretty big risk, if I'm being honest, um, of, of really betting on ourselves here because at the beginning a lot of the origin of this podcast series why I wanted to do it was me not having seen a 30 for 30 done by ESPN about it and thinking this would be an amazing 30 for 30 I wonder why ESPN hasn't done that and we learned over time that actually ESPN had pursued a 30 for 30 but Freddie hadn't been interested in participating And that meant there was a story here for us to tell, but also suggested we might face a similar challenge of getting Freddie to to talk because Freddie has given very few interviews over the years and has never at all before this podcast series given an interview in which he went through his career point by point and answered questions about it. And I understand why he hadn't done that because there's probably some things there that he hasn't been all that excited about talking about. And I get that. It's a very human thing. And I respect, you know, nobody has the obligation to talk to the media. But what I felt could happen is, one, that we could start doing the interviews and go ahead with this podcast series and all the reporting for it. And the more people I talked to, the, the more interviews came in and the more it became clear that this had really high ambitions. We were trying to tell the definitive Freddie Adu story that word would get to Freddie. So Freddie turned, turned me down he, at first. He was, he was polite and, and he was just like, you know, I just, no, I'm not going to do it. And so we, we interviewed over a month's period almost two dozen people. And then toward the end of June, I think I I heard from a couple people close to Freddie basically saying they had talked to Freddie and they thought he would be up for doing this podcast series. And so I got Freddie's text, you know, or cell number and we started communicating and he was like, let's do it. And, And so we did. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle and bustle all the time. And all of us could stand to hit that reset button now and again. And when you do, make sure you do it with a nice cold Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshments straight from the Rockies. 
Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. So next time you're able to sit at a baseball stadium, the sun's hot, and that vendor walks by, say, sir, I'd like a nice cold Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit that reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Guys, getting older isn't always fun, but it could be. And Roman is here to help. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation for erectile dysfunction and hair loss, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet, so complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Prodigy now to get $15 off your first month. That's GetRoman.com slash Prodigy. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. So I've got a couple questions for you here, Harry. Oh no, uh, turnabout is fair I mean, play. <laughs> I mean, first off, there's another aspect of these podcasts that you're involved in heavily that I have nothing to do with, which is sound design and the musical score. And I, I'm just curious if you could explain to the listeners and to me for that matter, how that went on this series. Sure. So we worked with a composer, a writer of music. His name is Brian Decker. He's really great. What I basically did was we knew that we needed a theme and that was the base on which everything else will be built. So for that we went back and forth actually quite a few times. Uh, I said that I was interested in the early 2000s DC house music scene because we were trying to set a time and a place and nice. we're in early 2000s in Washington, DC. So uh, we, we looked at that a bit. We took some inspiration there. I also was interested in one of the episode titles is All Falls Down, which is named after a Kanye West song of the same name. Uh, and so I kind of wanted some of that kind of hip hop production, which in the early 2000s was really starting to take off. It was Kanye's early albums. And so that's those those were the musical inspirations. And then he sent me a track and I would critique it. The first one, I, what I really wanted was a killer melody. I wanted you to be able to hum it. I wanted you to be able to go down the street. Da, 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 right? Because you think of all your favorite theme songs for TV, podcasts, whatever, and you can always just sing it right back. So I didn't want something that you couldn't sing and couldn't get stuck in your head. Once we had really locked in on the one that we have currently, that really had set the tone for all the rest of the music. And so we'd send him uh, an episode and he would score it and we'd get notes back and just kind of pass it back and forth a few times, winnowing down where where the music goes, what's in it. Sometimes we'd be like, more drums, less drums. Uh, that was the process, and it really does make all the difference. If you've never heard a podcast without the music, then, boy, you're, you're living the good life because no matter how awesome your podcast is, without music, when you put music on top of that, it's like, oh, right, that's where all the feeling is. That That's the part that makes me feel things. And so... I, you know, having listened to them all without, like, naked without music, once that once they got scored, that was when I was like, okay, this is going to work. We're going to take a little second here. I have a story 
uh, a quote that would not fit in the podcast. We're going to play it here just to show how fun and, and silly Freddie was. Listen to this. On Sundays at residency, the entirety of the IMG program would line up and sign ourselves out with a, a counselor from IMG that was a chaperone. We would get on a yellow school bus and drive to the local Walmart, which was about a 10-minute drive. You had an hour to go shop at Walmart. We'd save up our money and get these off-brand scooters, not even the good scooters, not even the razors. I mean, we're talking the knockoff ones. The wheels would probably fall off after about six weeks. And we would come back, and we would stay up all hours of the night riding our razor scooters around campus to the different dorms, jackass was a big thing at the time we would be like hey i'm freddie adu and this is jackass and we'd ride our scooters fully clothed into the swimming pool so that was during freddie's img days that was jamie watson talking about them being kids but that's when you met freddie that's how long ago it was he was at img when you talked to him and through the series you grapple with how you covered freddie when you were at SI and back in, in 2004, one of the questions we asked literally everyone we talked to was, were you partially at fault for what befell Freddie? You heard in the podcast, Freddie absolves you. You are not responsible. You have been blessed. I, I guess my question for you is, do I owe you an apology? No, you don't. <laughs> but do you... St- Still feel you played a role? Have you have you learned anything about covering prodigies? Would you do it differently? For one thing, like, yes, any media person plays a role in the story. And so if you put these guys on a cover for Sports Illustrated magazine, you're going to have an influence on the story itself by doing that and how they live their lives, how they're responded to, all of that. Now, I do think anybody who becomes a superstar in sports is going to have to deal with media coverage. And so as a media person, then the question becomes, is my coverage going to be responsible or is it not? And I still feel like at the time I went about things in a responsible way, you know, which was whether it was LeBron or Freddie to like do a lot of interviewing of people who are respected in the sports and get a sense of what their thoughts are about this phenom, you know, and, and what, what is there? Is it legit? It, you know, could they become the superstar that some people think they could be? And then getting into caveats about why that may not end up happening. Um, and so there's all of that in both the LeBron and Freddie stories that I wrote back in the day. Um, and yet you know, I quoted Phil Knight, the Nike CEO, saying about Freddie in Sports Illustrated that Freddie could be bigger for his sport than Tiger Woods, LeBron James, and Michael Jordan. And Phil Knight said it. I quoted him saying it, and the public all saw it at the same time as they were seeing a photograph of Freddie with Pele, which instantly, whether you're, you, you know, we didn't say, oh, he's the next Pele, but the photograph sure implied that. The television ad sure implied that. So if, if we're going to sit here and be critical of whoever signed off on Freddie and Pele being in a, a national TV ad campaign together when Freddie was 14, and we're going to be critical of MLS 
and the adults around Freddie, then we should be critical looking at, at the coverage. Um, so I think over the years, I certainly covered young you know, phenoms. I remember covering Christian Pulisic when he first broke through at Dortmund as, I think he was 16. Um, and we weren't putting him on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So um, I, I think maybe over the years I became a little more hesitant to, to write about the next big thing. And I do think that sort of the success that came with the LeBron James cover that I did in 2002 had an influence in how hard I pitched Freddie Adu a year later. Another thing that cropped up in 2004 while you were writing these stories and that we asked about in every interview, there were two questions. One was, were you responsible in some way? And the other one was about his age, about Freddie's age, if it was really the age he was, his stated 14 years old or 13, depending on when you're asking. Most of the answers were just a kind of essentially a shoulder shrug, people going like, well, he said he was this and so I believed him. Or sometimes he said he was this, but I don't, I don't believe him. But why is Freddie's age so important? And then what were people around the league feeling about it? I think the age question was important because it had a big impact on how much excitement do we have, should we have, over this young Freddie Adu. If he was 14 in 2004, that was a much different deal than if he had been 18 or 19, just because he was doing these things at such a young age. And that was leading to lucrative endorsement deals. It was leading to lucrative contract signings. The age factor was, was immense. So I get why people wondered. I get why there were questions. The main response we got when I, we, when I asked people about it in interviews for this series was, I think he was the age he said he was because he, he acted like a 14-year-old. He was kind of immature. <laughs> um, that's not what everyone said, and, and we quote Aleko Eskandarian, who's a friend of Freddie's, um, saying that you know he wasn't sure even today. Um, and I thought that was a really nuanced answer that he gave. But we also we also don't have proof. One of the best responses that I think we got about it uh, that we didn't have time for in the actual episode where we addressed this was uh, Thomas Rongin. He said that there, people were, you know, would joke about it, but like, how would you actually check? Listen to this. I've never talked to anybody in U.S. soccer outside of Bruce on, on a social location where we, where we would laugh about it a little bit, where he would say, DR, maybe we'll take him in a room, we'll break his fucking wrist, and you figure out, you know, how, how many layers the tree has. <laughs> I said, all right, Bruce, we'll end up in jail. That was the extent of it, pretty much. I think that people really felt, even if you were somebody who was a non-believer and thought that Freddie was much older than he was, how would you, how would you check? And, and obviously, MLS did not care. Uh, so it was just kind of a be mad, at, mad to yourself moment or, or, or make jokes, and that's what people did. You know, I think MLS cared, but they also didn't have any evidence to show that he wasn't the age he said he was. U.S. soccer didn't. And at a certain point, like, he was either going to make it or he, or he wasn't. And that's what we ended up looking at. 
That brings me to, you know, stories that you have that didn't make the podcast. The internet is abuzz with the story you did not tell. Somehow Urkel and I got into it when he remembered I had sarcastically called him a Hollywood luminary in a column that year. But that's a story for another day. Did I do that? What exactly happened between you and Jaleel White, a.k.a. Steve Urkel from Family Matters, <laughs> a.k.a. the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog in the original Sonic the Hedgehog cartoons? The world must know. What, what, what did that look like? It was kind of a surreal moment because here I am just trying to do my job covering, as a journalist, the final. Uh, it's out in L.A. D.C. United has just won. But, like, I go into the locker room, and, and post-championship game locker rooms are always a bit of a challenge just because there's champagne and players are spraying it over each other and sometimes on media – and it's not always easy to get actual interviews done because people just want to celebrate with their teammates and drink champagne. I get it. And it can be pretty chaotic. Now, out of in the corner of the room, I look up and I see Urkel, Jaleel White, uh, up there. And it's funny because I had seen him at different events over the years in the L.A. area because I was still covering college basketball at the time. And so when I would cover a game at UCLA, like a UCLA-Arizona basketball game at Pauley Pavilion, occasionally you'd see Urkel there. He, he's just kind of – he was lurking, uh, lurking Urkel. And, and so earlier that year – and I wrote a lot about Freddie – in 03 and 04. So earlier in 04, like, I think I was doing a mailbag column um, for our website. And I don't know even how it came up, but I, I mentioned sort of the celebrities who had gotten interested and latched onto Freddie that year. And uh, I, I mentioned Urkel and called him a, uh, I, so, sarcastically, a Hollywood luminary. <laughs> And didn't think much of it afterward. And then I get into the locker room after the final and see Urkel. And he looks at me. And then he has this like look of dawning realization over his face that, oh, here's that guy who, who wrote this about me earlier this year. And so he looks at me and in his Urkel voice says, you shot a dart at me. And, and, and I, and I look at him and, and I, I, I kind of turn around to see if he's like talking to somebody else, even though I know he's talking to me and, and I, 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 I look at him and kind of shrug my shoulders. I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> and I, try and, and I just didn't want to get into it. You know, um, it didn't get any worse. Uh, and Aleko or, uh, Urkel ended up, you know, hanging out with Freddie uh, in, in the post-game locker room. You mentioned, as Jaleel White is one of them, there were a bunch of celebrities that kind of hung out around Freddie and were in his orbit, if he, even if they didn't hang out with him. The one that I'm interested in is, is Kobe Bryant. And Freddie, as listeners will know, talked a lot of trash for a 14-year-old professional soccer player. He talked a lot of trash. And he decided it would be very cool and very awesome to challenge Kobe Bryant to soccer and then basketball. I'm gonna play a clip. 
This is his legitimate challenge. This is a video he sent to Kobe. I need to set up something with me and Kobe, man. Yeah, I just want to take him 1v1, dog. You want to take him one-on-one? Put it on ESPN or something. <laughs> me and Kobe, 1v1, and afterwards we'll play basketball. Not 1v1, but we'll play horse, because I can shoot. Kobe ain't got nothing on me, Kobe. Yeah, I hope they show you this tape, dog. I know you got skills, but uh-uh. Uh-uh. Don't bring that joint around me, boy. Don't bring it around me. When you were covering Freddie, was he, did he, did he do trash, like, did you ever hear any of his trash talking? Because I imagine a lot of it happened on the field. I will say this about Freddie, when, when he was around me and other media, he had a way of turning, turning himself on, which was slightly different from some, like, you know, I, I will always think about him telling Jaime Moreno that Jaime's daughter's favorite player was Freddie, not her dad. Freddie's like, Jaime's just mad at me because I'm his daughter's favorite player. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. This image of Jaime Moreno just wanting to beat up 14-year-old Freddie Adu, like we didn't see that, um, you know, from the media side really. And so while Freddie was charismatic and confident, he didn't stand out as, as someone who was just over-the-top taunting figures like Kobe Bryant and Javier Moreno at the time. In case you were wondering, there was a response video from Kobe, and this is what he shot back. Buddy, I saw the tape. Let me just say you're in deep shh. Don't let me catch you somewhere where there's a basketball on the court, homie. It's on, and I ain't talking about playing horse neither. Talking about jumping over you nasty, like vicious. I mean, Steve Nash vicious, you know what I'm talking about? Ah! I'm coming for you, buddy. He had met Shaq and Kobe in the tunnel, and Shaq had picked him up. There is a picture on the internet of, of Shaq holding Freddie Adu in his arms like a child. <laughs> and I, this picture was supposedly or possibly taken by somebody in Freddie's entourage. And we talk about Freddie's entourage. His mom, Trevor Moad, Arnold Tarzi, Richard Motzkin, uh, some of his family members. Freddie was adamant that they were all incredibly important in his life and that they were all great influences. And Trevor, he, he really swore by Trevor Moad. But a lot of his DC United teammates and some of the DC United crew were said that they weren't really, that, that some of them were, were bad influences or that, that they were not necessarily helping Freddie in, in the best way they could. Did you notice any of that while that was happening? Big stars in sports met Freddie largely through Trevor Moad because he worked with a lot of NFL players, had a lot of contacts with IMG and a lot of success. But like, you know, Michael Johnson, the Olympic track and field champion, became pretty close to Freddie Adu. And, you know, even when the the famous... Mike Wise column in the Washington Post came out where about Freddie complaining about his playing time at DC United, like Michael Johnson is quoted in there about how Peter Novak's not trusting Freddie or treating Freddie very well. And like, it's kind of crazy to think that Michael Johnson was part of Freddie Adu's entourage, but like there were, there were quite a few people like this uh, surrounding Freddie whom he'd met. Um, and so 
uh, I do think there certainly was an element, and he had some family members in that group too. Um, I think there was an element of people around Freddie telling him a lot, like, you should be playing more, you should be playing more, you should be playing more, you should be starting every game, this and that. And that certainly did increase the amount of tension between Freddie's camp and Freddie and DC United. Okay, so you did you did actually feel it while you were there, and, and you could tell it was happening. Even at the time, and I, I talked to Trevor Moat a lot uh, back in those days, and so what was interesting to me was a lot of Trevor's complaints about Freddie's playing time and how Peter Novak was handling him at the time were, were in off-the-record conversations with me at the time, and then they were suddenly on the record in the Washington Post with Mike Wise, and I remember reading that column and being like, whoa, he went on the record. So, I mean, you know, we talk about this in, in the podcast series where you know, Trevor Moad looks back on that and thinks, you know, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gone on the record in the Washington Post with that stuff. Just a few days before we were recording this, MLS released its list of its greatest 25 players to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the league, and Freddie was not on it. Now, it might be obvious that Freddie, why he wasn't on the list, but... Would you say that he was one of the 25 most important players in MLS history? I mean, it's a really good question because, yeah, he's not one of the 25 greatest. But 25 most important? Yeah, I I think he is. And, you know, I think if there's a book on the history of MLS, there's a chapter on Freddie Adu. I think it's accurate to say there was a Freddie Adu era of MLS between 2004 and 2006, which immediately preceded the David Beckham era that started in 07. If you look at Freddie's legacy in MLS, a lot of the legacy is, I think, MLS learning what not to do and to improve so stuff like that wouldn't happen again. The early parts of the David Beckham years were kind of similar, like they learned what not to do. But that's important. And, and I still believe that Freddie Adu brought MLS to millions of people in the United States and outside the United States who had never even contemplated MLS before. And that's similar to Beckham as well. You know, not the same, but it's, it's just interesting to me that when you look at what MLS paid Freddie to do and the amount of attendance spikes that he provided, television ratings, um, he more than, you know, he probably was underpaid, actually. So maybe not as much as you were in 2002, three, and four, but you're still, you're still plugged in on the, on the prodigy world. If you could call... So you, you call two shots, and, and, and it seems one of them is far exceeded expectations than LeBron. One of them didn't quite make there in Freddie. This is, this is the, the decider. Call your next shot. Who's the <laughs> next American prodigy in soccer? I don't know if there's a current prodigy in American soccer. I mean, it's pretty incredible that... Gio Reyna just turned 18 and is starting games at Borussia Dortmund, um, one of the top clubs in Europe and scoring goals. And, and so he might be the closest thing to that. Yeah, you know, we don't really have anyone right now in American men's soccer who's like 
15, 14 years old that you're like potential genius, potential LeBron slash Tiger, Maradona type. I do find it interesting that there's a, a, a young woman named Olivia Moultrie who turned pro at age 13 and lives in Portland and has a Nike contract and happens to be represented by the same agency that represented Freddie Adu Wasserman. Um, so there's a lot of similarities there. And Sports Illustrated's Chris Ballard did do a really interesting story about Olivia Moultrie last year. So I think she'll be an interesting story to follow. Um, you know, you don't see too many, uh, you know, too many kids turning pro at age 13. This is the last question I'll ask you, and I'm going to do my best to sum up uh, the entirety of the, the, the podcast in one question. And that is basically, we set out to learn more not about just Freddy. It's not just about Freddy. It was about prodigies in general and our American obsession with them. What did you end up actually learning? Different things. You know, like it was really interesting to talk to Freddy and understand from his perspective years later how he views that experience of, of being the center of attention in, a, in an insane way that very few humans are ever a part of and what he learned from it and how as a kid he just really enjoyed it at first and thought it was fun. And then he said how it got more difficult over time and there was pressure and there were times when he just wanted to to be a kid and wanted to focus on playing soccer and not having to do all these promotional interviews and signing autographs for a bunch of people and you know meeting sponsors and you know it, it does make you think you know like Carrie Goldberg Trutanich who worked with his agents and spent a lot of time with Freddie said, you know, too much too soon. And it, you know, Freddie was pretty incredible at his age in terms of his, his charisma and, and his ability to do interviews and, and all those things. But I think we also asked him to be a superhuman and I don't think all the adults around Freddie uh, always did things in his interest. Um, so I, I think that came out in this. I think, you know, talking to people who observed all this were with Freddie as teammates. You know, Ernie Stewart said he, at the time, just, you know, felt sorry for him at times. Um, you know, and I look at present day and I see Yusofa Mukoko, um, at, at Dortmund now, just making his debut at, at 16 years old in, in the German league, literally prevents you from making your debut in the first division until you're 16 years old. So maybe it's too bad MLS didn't have something like that back in the day. Um, but I think people learn from it. I think MLS is in a different place today. I think if Freddie came out today there would be a much different infrastructure to help him succeed. Grant, that was that was the end of our American Prodigy Odyssey, at least for this story of Freddie Adu. Take us away. Yeah, I just thank you so much for, for everything you've done, Harry, uh, and all this. And, and thank you to everyone at Blue Wire 
podcasts. Um, this is a, uh, a fairly young podcast company doing its very first ambitious narrative podcast storytelling series. And uh, I felt supported the entire way through, uh, but also allowed to, to do the creative stuff without having that being interfered with. And, and the trust was there of like, even if you don't get Freddie, let's do this. And that allowed me to get Freddie in the end to be a part of this. So um, just really enjoyed the experience and look forward to telling more stories like this in the future. Thank you so much, Grant.